This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Dr. Elizabeth Klein, who is an associate professor of theology at the Augustine Institute just outside Denver, Colorado. She specializes in patristic theology, which is my favorite kind. And she particularly studies the writings of St. Augustine, which I think is somewhat appropriate since you're at the Augustine Institute. Of course, she got her uh, her doctorate at the University of Notre Dame and so has lots of ties there with the McGrath Institute, Dr. Jan John Cavadini and that whole crew. And that brings us to our conversation today because she's recently written a book, Angels and Saints, Who They Are and Why They Matter. It's part of the Engaging Catholicism series on Ave Maria Press. We've talked about a number of the other books in that series over the years. That's a collaboration between the McGrath Institute for Church Life and Ave Maria Press, both there in uh, in South Bend, Indiana, under the Golden Dome. Elizabeth, it's so good to have you here on the show today. Thanks for having me. So I grew up in the Protestant church. Uh, I came into the Catholic church and saints and angels were one of the things that I kind of had to wrap my mind around and not not really had have a solid understanding or view of it. In fact, I recall, you know, you hear about your guardian angel, even as a Protestant growing up, I I heard about that all the time. And that was one of the first things in my uh, coming to wrestle with understanding my adult faith. One of the things I really had to, to look at and say, okay, is this one of those uh, fairy tale myth stories that I always heard from my parents to make me feel good, or is this actually a part of the faith? Of course, you answer that in the book, but let's let's start there. Um, what what does the church teach about about angels and our relationship with them? Sure. Well, we can start at the top, I suppose. We can get to guardian angels in, in just a second, but angels in general. I mean, as you said. Uh, they tend to be kind of a nebulous area of theology. I, like you, am a Protestant convert. Uh, and I wrote my dissertation on Augustine and angels. And I didn't realize like Catholics were like super into angels. So then when I became Catholic, all of a sudden I got all these angel questions. So I had, I had to kind of brush up on the popular piety angel stuff as well as the the theological stuff. Um, and so it can sound kind of mysterious, like what is an angel and what are they up to? Um, but the name angel just means messenger in Greek. Uh, and so... The first thing to kind of know about the angels is that the way that we refer to them is like by their job title Mm -hmm. rather than their sort of nature, what they do. Um, And if you're on the lookout for them, they show up quite a lot in the Old Testament, uh, you know, in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, especially always sending messages right from God, God to the people. So that's kind of their fundamental gig is, is doing messages. And so then we're left to ask kind of like, what are they? Uh, and this does take a little bit of time to sort out in the tradition of the church. Uh, I mean, devotions to angels and discussion of angels is very ancient. Everybody in antiquity knew that there were spiritual creatures, so it wasn't necessarily controversial. Um, but how they were kind of different from human beings or how they interacted with us takes a little time. Uh, but the church teaches that angels are purely incorporeal creatures who are rational like us. Uh, which means basically they're created by God, but they don't have bodies. They're kind of pure intellect. Um, And this is a beautiful thing uh, because when we think about creation uh, and why God created, you know, God created to sort of manifest his infinite goodness in all these different ways. And so we have 
you know, creatures who don't have bodies and are purely intellectual and they only had to make the choice for it against God once. That's angels. And we have creatures who are spiritual and bodily who make decisions for and against God throughout their life. That's us. And then we have creatures who are kind of purely corporeal and cannot sin, which is which is animals. Uh, and so you have this beautiful manifestation of kind of kind of God's God's goodness all the way down. Um, so that's kind of the basic definition of an angel, what an angel is, an incorporeal, rational creature who serves as God's messenger. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, so in the Old Testament, there are a number of occasions where something that is mentioned, an angel of the Lord, uh, ends up being what today we would classify as theophany, that that it's not merely an angel of the a messenger of the Lord, but it is the Lord himself, such as in the burning bush. Um, how does that theology of angels maybe change between what was uh, what was presented through the Old Testament and then what comes to be presented in the New Testament and beyond? Yeah, so this is actually a bit of a debated East-West debated question. So in the East, um, they typically tended to think of those those angelophanies as straight theophanies, that somehow it was God himself appearing. Um, and St. Augustine takes this on at the beginning of the De Trinitate and argues that when the Bible says it's angels, it's actually angels okay, uh, and not sort of just uh, God by another name. Um, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean he thinks they're le- a less of a sort of intimate encounter with God, uh, but he thinks if you have God showing up all over the place in the Old Testament, it sort of reduces the impact of the incarnation or what kind of appearance happens in the incarnation. So he argues that it is angels, um, but that angels, by virtue of their nature, kind of have a special ability to speak on God's behalf and manifest his glory. Uh, and so that's why you you do get that very interesting scene, as you mentioned, in the burning bush, where it says, an angel of the Lord spoke from the bush, and then you get the Lord spoke. Right. Um, and so Augustine actually compares this to the prophets, uh, where he says it's perfectly acceptable to say the Lord said, when really it's actually, you know, Haggai or whatever, who's right. who's giving the pronouncement um, that they're able to sort of um, speak on God's behalf, but of course they have sort of superior qualities in their uh, prophetic aspect, and and you can see this all over the place. Right when angels show up, like people are scared of them; they somehow uh, reflect the glory of God or manifest it in a particular uh, way that makes His presence sort of um, palpable. But this has been a kind of contentious point. Some people in the East think that this is sort of insufficient count of the theophanies or tries to keep away a direct experience of God or or something like that, which I'm an Augustine person. So I think that that's, yeah. uh, that's great. And that uh, for Augustine, you know, God disclosing himself through creative realities is not a source of distance as in the sacraments or in the incarnation. Yeah, I was uh, actually had that thought about sacramental, uh, that we have a, a personal encounter with God through the sacraments, through sacramental grace, and that the way you were describing the, the message of the angels bringing God's presence almost had a sacramental feel with the exception that of course sacraments are a way that we receive spiritual grace through physical means and the angels as you have mentioned are incorporeal angels have often been a source of um of speculation and uh, and uh maybe fun thought exercises so everything from um how many you know the the famous question everyone brings up how many angels can can dance on the head of a pen all the way to uh the really thorough kind of framework put up in the the middle ages uh by 
by Aquinas and by others about, oh, well, every angel is a species unto itself, all the way up to you know, they're making kind of a resurgence today in meme format as you go anywhere on the internet and you see all of the representations of biblically accurate angels and the kind of the jokes of putting that that uh, wheel within a wheel of eyes on top of the tree instead of the traditional one. Um, why do you think that angels so capture our imagination throughout history uh, that they continue to be a topic of uh, of investigation of, of musing. Yeah. I mean, I would say that for the medievals, the medievals are, de- are deeply interested in God's wisdom and order in creation. It's something that really captivates them, something they meditate on in all kinds of different ways uh, that includes the angels. So I think that that's something that interested medievals, but generally speaking, and maybe this is going to sound a little flippant, but like, it's not that different from people's like obsession with aliens because you know, secular people want aliens to exist because it somehow like m- makes us have more meaning in life or something because we don't like to think of ourselves as being alone in the universe, sort of floating on, you know, planet Earth with kind of adrift. And of course, Christians don't think that anyway, because we have a different worldview. But I think it's kind of a similar, it's kind of a similar impulse. Like it's really cool that we have big brothers and sisters, for lack of a better phrase, who are celestial creatures. It makes us feel less alone in the universe and it makes us feel like, um, yeah, there's, there's some other intelligences like us who can experience sort of God's love. And I think that's kind of an interesting, interesting thing. And also I think because, I mean, it's, we all know that God is omnipotent and God is present everywhere, but we kind of thrive on particulars, mm-hmm. you know? And so there is a kind of extra special comfort in thinking about guardian angels uh, or celestial beings that are kind of involved in everyday life and in dispensing God's providence. It seems to me something that even people who aren't wouldn't self-identify as particularly re- religious still find that idea kind of comforting or interesting. So, specifically on on this this topic of of we spend a lot of time thinking about angels, and that's both to our benefit, but I think it's also somewhat. Uh, uh, to our detriment, because it's very easy to get our cultural uh, understandings or cultural uh, thoughts about angels mixed up with kind of the theology that the church provides. So, for instance, talking on the topic of guardian angels, we can think really easily without much effort to Clarence, the angel, and the uh, the that which was made uh, popular by by It's a Wonderful Life, that every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, and somehow that uh, angels are kind of our job after we die, right? There's some kind of in-between phrase, or maybe maybe when we die, we turn into angels and we look after those that we love, and, and it turns into maybe a little bit of a challenge to extricate our theological understanding of angels from the popular understanding of angels, leading us either to accept things that aren't true or to dismiss things that are true. So can you maybe help us contextualize that? You mentioned that that specific question in the book, do we turn into angels when we die? And and you mentioned the, the whole topic of guardian angels. Can you give us a little rundown on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say first that it's not a uniquely modern problem to have a sort of a lot of mixed ideas about spiritual creatures. And this is like, a hotly contested thing in antiquity. So 
this is something the church has always sort of been aware of and had to talk about. Um, and if, in a general way, if you're interested in sort of things to avoid with angels and things to uh, sort of cling to piously, there's a really great uh, document from the Congregation for Divine Worship. It's called the Directory for Popular Piety. And so it has all kinds of guidelines for uh, just various practices in popular piety and sort of what is really healthy and falls within the purview of the church and what doesn't. So that's kind of useful if you're ever wondering like, hey, my friends invited me to this like angel thing. Like, is that actually, you know, legit? Um, so that's sort of generally. To the two questions you mentioned, do we become angels when we die? So no, we don't become angels when we die because any more than we become animals when we die or or whatever, because we don't change who we fundamentally, fundamentally are. We stay human beings. However, I have had people ask me this question and say, well, what do I say to my friend who says that they're, you know, dead relatives and angel in heaven? I was like, well, you probably don't know them well enough to be like, technically not. They're not actually <laughs> angels. Uh, so usually what I, w what I would say to somebody or if I'm asked this question, like our, our beloved dead, if they died in the peace of Christ, certainly can intercede for us and watch over us and be involved in our guardianship, even though they're not technically speaking angels. Um, so yeah, you might want to be careful how hard, how hard to come down on the, on the no angel in heaven thing. Uh, and in the broad sense of, of messenger, Augustine actually does call John the Baptist, for example, an, a supreme angel of the Lord because he announces the Lord's birth and and these kinds of things. Um, but yes, ontologically speaking, we get to stay people, which I think is very good news. Uh, after yeah. we die, we get to keep our identity. Um, we don't have to be dependent on some bell ringing somewhere for us to complete our Exactly. Journey. Nobody has to ring a bell for us to have eternal beatitude. That is in the hands of Christ, thankfully. <laughs> so that's, that's a good thing. Um, and then with guardian angels, a guardian angels is something that you might be tempted to think is like a pious Catholic fiction that grew up over time, but it's actually extremely ancient um, and is there's evidence for it in the New Testament. Uh, so the two instances in the New Testament where guardian angels are mentioned, uh, one is when Peter uh, is released from prison yeah. uh, and shows up at the door uh, and Rhoda says it must be his angel or the people inside say it must be his angel because um, they don't believe that, you know, it's really Peter. So that indicates it's, you know, it's kind of hard to tease out much more about what they believed about guardian angels, but you know, indicates a belief in personal guardianship of angels. Uh, and the other is in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, when uh, Christ says not to look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you, their angels always see the face of the Father in heaven. So kind of indicating that each individual person has an angel. So the idea of guardian angels is absolutely ubiquitous from the very earliest days of the church. And in fact, much more extensive, really, than our understanding of guardian angels. Uh, so the fathers talk about each church having an angel because of revelation, mm -hmm. right? They write to the angels of the churches, every nation having an angel, which they took from sort of a Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy. Uh, you know, basically everything has an angel appointed to it. There's angels everywhere. They're doing all kinds of stuff, according to the fathers. So under the, the assumption that there's no such thing as a stupid question, I'm going to present you this one. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, as a, as a teen, I, I, kind of wrestled with this question along the lines of how many angels dance on that have a pen. Cause I don't know that there's actually an answer, but I would think about, okay, every person's got an angel. Uh, when you die, does that angel get reassigned? The populations obviously exploded uh, since ancient times. So, uh, and God is not creating new angels. So like it was, they're just a, a, a massive amount of angels ahead of time, or do angels split their duties between uh, numerous people and and 
yes, it's your angel, but your angel also has like another billion people he's got to look out for. Okay. So about all this angel stuff, first of all, I want to say like what is actually de fide about angels and what's not. So most of this stuff is like uh, what you mentioned with Thomas Aquinas and the choirs of angels or angels having their own species and these kinds of things. These fall firmly in the realm of speculative theology. So all you Catholics out there, you are not bound to believe any of these things. Guardian angels are, I I think, de fide. They're in the catechism. They're a pretty strong tradition, but not that much about them. And then that they're incorporeal spiritual creatures. That's basically what the church teaches. Uh, but there's lots of speculations about the kinds of things you're talking about. Um, I mean, one of the classic questions is whether or not every single person has an angel or just the baptized have angels. Uh, so that's not an unresolved question. As to your question about how many angels there are and whether or not they need to be reassigned, I mean, in the tradition, there's the idea of something called the doctrine of substitution, which is that the number of human beings that are going to be in heaven will make up the number of fallen angels. Um, And so assuming that like, I don't know, whatever, like a third of them or a fourth of them fell, there's like more than enough angels to go around for everybody. Uh, So yeah, the idea is that there's quite a lot more angels than there are people, even despite, uh, you know, you never people being there, lots of people and new people. So lots of angels in the Eastern liturgy, they say like myriads and myriads of angels. So we should be covered, but I also don't see a reason why, you know, once you die, angel either did or did not do their job. They get a, they get a new (laughs) award. But yeah. So what began your, your fascination with angels to the point where you would even do the, the, the doctoral dissertation on that. I mean, that's a lot of effort and attention and I'm sure it just didn't spring up overnight looking through a book saying, uh, maybe I'll pick that one for my, for my focus. Yeah. You know, actually I wasn't, I didn't come right to the question of like being really interested in angels as such. Uh, but I was very interested in Augustine and I was reading the city of God and book 10 of the city of God, which is one of the most written about books. One of the most beautiful books, uh, talks about true Christian worship is actually about angels. Uh, And I thought it was really curious that people didn't seem to talk about that or notice that the actual book, the question of the book is whether or not we should worship angels, which the answer is obviously no. Um, But I just became interested in what it was about angelic society that interested him so much, especially in the city of God, because for him, the two cities, if you're familiar with the work at all, even kind of on a broad level, the two cities, the city of God and the city of man are actually founded both by angels, right? The good angels found the city of God and the evil angels uh, sort of found and influenced the city of man. And so there's quite a lot in city of God about the angels. Um, and there's just a really interesting vantage point to understand what Augustine's vision of perfection is, what he understands the church to be uh, when you look at sort of his reflection on the angels. Cause of course this is sort of like a, static perfect model or something of what um proper relationship with god looks like and proper relationship with each other so that's what got me interested in it as i said i didn't really kind of realize until i was at the end of it that like people are super into angels but i had a lot of i had a lot of fun um looking at all that stuff and um looking at de trinitate and his argument about the theophanies of the old testament being angels and then some of his homilies on spiritual warfare um and his interpretation of the creation story really is fascinating which i don't think a lot of people no, because um, it's I don't think it's something that really lasts in the tradition all that much. But he interprets the seven days of creation as being kind of only seven days from the perspective of angels who are watching creation unfold, uh, which I found kind of very interesting as like Genesis is almost like a, I don't know, angel play or something. It's like yeah. God is doing it in this manner as a teaching 
method for the angels and then by extension for us. So the name of the book again on Ave Maria Press is Angels and Saints, Who They Are and Why They Matter. That's part of the Engaging Catholicism series. So let's get to that that question. We've talked a little bit about who they are. Um, why do they matter? And specifically in, in our day and age when we seem to be focused so much on on the pragmatic expression of faith and trying to live our faith in a, in a very tangible, practical way. Why does the belief in angels matter and how do we engage that uh, more fully and faithfully as Catholics? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a number of ways um, that sort of awareness of angels or having piety towards angels can kind of be a help in the faith. Um, and actually that document I mentioned from the CDW talks about a couple of ways that healthy spirituality of angels sort of is a good uh, pious practice. Uh, so the first thing it talks about is um, that increases our gratitude towards God, um, because when we contemplate the angels, even a little bit, as we have in the show, uh, we will sort of have a lot of gratitude towards God at putting such creatures of great nobility at our service. Uh, and so I've often thought about this kind of like, I don't know, what if someone assigned the president to be like your secretary for a day? Like it would be, that'd be pretty shocking, right? It'd be pretty alarming. Uh, and in a lot of ways, like angels, you know, They've got their own business to do of worshiping God. They're superior creatures. They don't really need to be wasting their time with us. Uh, but of course they do because they love God and want to serve God and therefore serve us. But there is a sort of uh, increase of gratitude um, in reflecting on this gift of God, of the angels and their fellowship. Uh, another uh, is increased reverence. Uh, so the fathers love to talk about the angelic presence, especially at the liturgy. Um, and of course, we at the high point of the liturgy, uh, we sing the Sanctus, the Song of the Angels, the Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God of hosts. And so if we can gain some awareness, however small, however infrequently, that we actually are participating in the heavenly worship before the throne at that moment, um, as is described in Revelation, that this is kind of an increase of our reverence. Um, we can ask the angels to help increase our reverence. Um, this this aspect of angels' involvement in the liturgy is especially Noticeable if you've ever been to an Eastern liturgy, an Eastern Catholic liturgy. I'm, I go to a Byzantine parish, so hence my, my interest in that. Um, but yeah, John Chrysostom says that around the altar, you know, hover myriads of angels at the moment of consecration. So if we can have some sense of that, you know, even just a little bit might increase, increase our reverence um, and participation in the liturgy. Uh, and then the last thing it says it helps with is serenity. So as I mentioned before, we know that God is everywhere. We know that God is omnipotent, and yet somehow we still manage to be like really anxious and stressed about things. Uh, and so knowing that there's sort of like an angel appointed to all of these tasks can be a kind of increased awareness of God's providence, of God's uh, governance of everything. I've often thought about, you know, you worry about like your parish or the church, you're like, oh, there's an angel for that. You worry about your country, there's an angel for that. You know, there's, there's a more powerful creature uh, who God is also appointed to uh, mind these things. Uh, and so it's kind of another way of thinking about um, God's care for the universe. I want to go back to something you said in that that answer. You said um, we can ask our angels to give us a greater sense of reverence in the Mass and then talked about how that might happen. I'm uh, I'm curious about, obviously we we ask for the saints' intercession, but we don't typically ask for the saints to do anything for us apart from pray for us. Um, it seems like that relationship may be different. I've certainly seen people uh, express it in different ways between an angel, because we're not asking, again, 
it's in some way just a different relationship. Is there are there limits on that kind of conversant relationship with our guardian angels, and what would that what would that look like? Yeah, so it's quite similar to the relationship we would have with the saints. So we ask the angels to intercede for us or or pray for us. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's so different from the saints. And as with the saints, we may have a bit of a two, more two way relationship with the saints because often we can read writings that they've left behind or uh, you know pray prayers that they wrote or whatever. But you know, generally speaking, saints don't talk back to me. I don't know about you. Maybe they do. Uh, so there yeah. may be. You know, there are cases of people like Padre Pio or who have experiences of their guardian angels speaking back to them, but that's not something you would probably expect in the everyday Catholic experience. But as with the saint, you know, you can develop a relationship uh, through through prayer. Okay. How has your uh, your own appreciation of angels increased, both from your work with Augustine and, uh, and also through your working on this particular book? Yeah, I would say maybe something that sort of just incre- increased piety in general is just towards um, what we call the doctrine of creation. You know, how God has ordered the universe and created all things well. Uh, I think I especially was attracted to in the doctoral work, this isn't in the popular book, but with the um, idea of the angelic participation in sort of the unfolding of creation. And it, it sort of gave me a new appreciation for God's just mercy and beneficence in including all of us in his plan of salvation. You know, because you think, like I said, the angels, they're pretty awesome. Like they don't really need to be coming down to earth to announce the birth of Jesus to some shepherds, uh, you know, but this is the great story in which we're all called to play a part and the angels do so so gladly and joyfully uh, that it sort of give me a new appreciation for what God is calling me to do in participating in sort of his plan. Uh, this the question of participation is interesting to me because the job, of course, of the angels is to be messengers. Uh, but you mentioned, I think it was Augustine who called John the Baptist an angel because of his participation in sharing a message. Is there some sense, obviously, that we are body, soul, and not just intellect like the angels, but is there some sense that we participate in the mission of angels when we go and share the mission of the gospel? Yeah, absolutely. And Augustine often likes to pair prophets, angels, and apostles uh, as sort of people who are called to a similar task. Uh, And in some ways, you know, angels are obviously still involved in in messaging, but in some ways, like the angels, big moments, like the incarnations, like that's, that was their message. And then they show up on, you know, kind of in force on Christmas uh, because that's like the big day they've been waiting for. Uh, and then their vocation is sort of passed on or shared with all of us who then are heralds of the gospel. Mm-hmm. The book is called Angels and Saints, Who They Are and Why They Matter. It's part of the Engaging Catholicism series between the McGrath Institute for Church Life and Ave Maria Press. We're talking today with Dr. Elizabeth Klein, an associate professor of theology at the Augustine Institute there just outside of Denver, Colorado. She specializes in patristic theology, particularly the writings of St. Augustine. You can also find some of her work over on Formed, form.org. When we come back, we're going to tackle the second subject of the book, Who are the Saints and Why Do They Matter? Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere because there is so much more to this conversation right after the break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with 
TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. Elizabeth Klein, Associate Professor of Theology at the Augustine Institute, just outside Denver, Colorado. She specializes in patristic theology, particularly the writings of St. Augustine. She's the author of Augustine's Theology of Angels, which we talked about a little bit here, available on Cambridge University Press. Also, the new book, Angels and Saints, Who They Are and Why They Matter. It's part of the Engaging Catholicism series between the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and Ave Maria Press. She's also contributed to the non-academic theological work of the Augustine Institute, including appearances on Formed, formed formed.org. I want to encourage you, if you've not gone to look at that, uh, maybe your parish has already uh, gotten a subscription and you can just log in, uh, but certainly go and look at the wonderful Bible studies and other uh, video content available there at forum.org. Elizabeth, thank you again so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we spent the first whole segment talking about angels, but that's only part of the book because the book is angels and saints, who they are and why they matter. So let's shift our focus now from the angelic uh, to uh, the, the, the sanctified. Right. Let's move over to the question of saints. Um, this is another one of those topics that as a convert, you have to wrestle with, right? Because there isn't really a concept for the communion of saints as it's understood in the ancient churches. In the Protestant church, when we talk about saints in the Protestant church, we mean all of those people who are sitting next to me in the pew, but not necessarily all of those who are around the throne of God enjoying the beatific vision. So, who are saints to us in a Catholic content? Yeah, absolutely. You've actually touched on kind of a key key issue because defining the word saint is like a little more tricky than you might think. Because as a Catholic, you think of like capital S-T, like St. Joseph, and that's a saint. Yeah. As you're saying, as a Protestant, you think of, you know, all the saints at the church in Philippi as just being kind of a general category for Christians. And the re- answer is, is that saints are both of these things. They're both and. Because the word saint just comes from the Latin sanctus, which means holy. So it's just the people who are holy. So if you're going to ask who are saints, you have to ask, well, what does it mean to be holy? Uh, which turns out to be a, complica- a complicated question in some in some sense. Because um, again, we think we know what holiness is, but then we talk about things like the Holy Bible. And that's not the same as saying a person who is holy. So really what holiness indicates in some sense is likeness to God. Uh, and the way that we become like God is by worshiping him. That's how we kind of participate in the life of God. So the like kind of level of sanctity from the lowest to the highest has to do with worship and our participation in the worship of God and our disposition towards it, which of course includes things like being a good person. Um, but at the most basic level from a Catholic perspective, what this means is to be baptized. So if you're baptized, you receive the indelible character on your soul that sort of marks you out as one who can worship God. Uh, So this is why you need to be baptized before you can receive the Eucharist, for example, in the Catholic context, because that's like you getting the the keys to the kingdom, right? You're getting a sort of priestly power permission to participate in the sacrifice of the Mass and to worship God. So anyone who's baptized is in an extended sense holy, which is why Protestants call all Christians holy, or St. Paul writing to the letters uh, to churches will say to all the holy ones, to all the saints, 
as such to such a church. And he calls, for example, all the Corinthians saints. And we know if you've ever read the letters to the Corinthians, that there is some not so good stuff happening at the Corinthian church. Not all of them were morally sort of perfect. So Mm -hmm. we kind of have this wide bucket of sanctity or saints, which are the baptized. And then sort of going a little further, those who are more holy, those who are closer to perfect worship of God, are those who are staying in a state of grace Uh, sort of living their life of faith, staying out of grievous sin, these kinds of things, offering their life as a sacrifice to God. That's sort of the next level. Uh, And then the next level, these are people we typically as Catholics think of saints, are those who are in glory. So those who have actually persisted in the state of grace all the way till death, died in the peace of Christ, and are now without sin, worshiping God perfectly face-to-face in the beatific vision. Well, perhaps this is something that we miss in the conception we have of the, the the popular conception we have in the communion of saints. Uh, perhaps we think of the communion of saints as our communion with the saints rather than the communion among the saints between, uh, of course, the church expresses this uh, well throughout time uh, of the, the, the church militant, the church suffering and the church triumphant, that all three, those who are living, those who are in purgatory, those who are experiencing the beatific vision, all three of them make up the communion of saints rather than it just being us and them. Yeah, absolutely. And this is brought out in the word communion, right? Which makes should make us think of the Eucharist, right? So when we're, you know, communing with God in the Eucharist, we're actually experiencing union with Christ's mystical body, which includes those living, those who have, and those who have died. So yeah, it includes, includes everybody. So um, those who are sort of had the highest tier of saintliness uh, are those who are in heaven, uh, but we're all saints and being called to be saints at the same time. And then we have that special category of sort of capital S D saint of canonized saints. Uh, and a canonized saint is somebody, a canon is just kind of like an approved list. You know, we talk about like the canon of scripture. It's like, this is the list you're allowed to read at mass. And so similarly, the canon of saints are, these are the people we're allowed to incorporate into our worship. They've been, had the seal of approval of the church. So this is actually like just a subcategory of those in glory. We don't recognize everyone in glory. Um, but yeah, we have this group of canonized saints, and this is still a category pertaining to worship, right? These people have a special sort of privilege to be incorporated into the worship uh, of the church. And so all these categories are kind of pertaining to worship of God from those of us who are just starting out to those of us who are worshiping God perfectly and even being called upon to participate in the worship on earth. An interesting point that I think we don't often contemplate is that the canonized saint that we are allowed to and encouraged to uh, include in our liturgical prayer and our liturgical practice, uh, that stamp of approval, one of the things that has to be present before that's uh, given over apart from the miracles, apart from that other process, is there has to be already a group of people who are invested in relationship and even in some liturgical expression for that person. So this is a saint who um, who lived in a community and so impacted that community that they continue to remember and recognize that person in their community and in their worship before it ever gets brought to the whole church, right? Yeah. And so we tend to think of the canonized saints as this kind of, well, the church has to speak and then we can do it, uh, when really the church only does it after it has been proven that there is that the church is 
interested in that person. Absolutely. And in fact, like what we think about as the modern canonization process really is that. I mean, it's modern. It's in response to the Protestant Reformation where you have people saying like, oh, you're just wor- you're praying to people who didn't even exist or, you know, people who aren't worthy of sort of this this type of veneration. So then you have a formal process really put in place to make sure everything's sort of above board. But prior to that time, it really is exactly what you're talking about. People venerated uh, someone who lived a holy life, wanted them as a as an intercessor, look to them as an example. And then somewhere along the line, the church might say, give, say, yeah, that's, that's fine. Or no, don't do that. Um, but it's real, it's really from, from the ground up and it's a kind of lex orandi, lex credendi thing. The law of prayer is the law of faith. It's, it's what, yeah, people recognized in a person. And it's such a wonderful thing to be in that kind of process, because if we, if we miss that, we end up missing out on a number of holy people who could be our intercessors. There are family members that have gone before us who who we can see their lives and see the fruit of their lives and the evidence of their lives and know that they are holy, but we forget to even bring them up until All Saints Day, right? And so there is, the communion of saints is not just our communion with the canonized approved list, it is our communion with the whole body of Christ, the whole mystical body of Christ, uh, here on earth, there in purgatory, and all the way in heaven. Absolutely. And I actually think that, weirdly, this is one like upside of relics, which is, you know, sometimes seen as a kind of creepy Catholic thing. Uh, but I thought about it a lot for the book and in general. Actually, as a Protestant convert, I thought relics and saints were awesome from like the very beginning. So I guess it wasn't as allergic to that. But when we think about the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, we think about the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ under the form of bread and wine, which is, of course, true. Uh, but we don't necessarily think about the true presence of Christ's mystical body, which is also part of the Eucharist, right? We have true communion with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, both living and dead, more intimately than we do when they're sitting beside us. And I think that's a very beautiful aspect of the Eucharist and something that's brought out by the fact that um, relics of saints are always in the altar stone or beneath the altar. And so you kind of have an icon of the true presence of the mystical body uh, physically there uh, in the celebration of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently went to Rome. Of course, the, the relics are are everywhere there. Uh, but I think that one of the things that, um, and, and you bring this up in the conversation with angels earlier, that we as as humans, when we die and we are separated from our bodies, we never cease to be connected to our bodies. We're waiting for the resurrection. We're waiting for the bodily resurrection, but we are still body soul. (laughs) They just happen to be in different places at that moment. And you see that I think most clearly when you go to a church that has a relic and you feel closer to that person. We see the same thing when we go to the cemetery to be near uh, our loved one who has passed on, that there is something important about that tangible connection to the other person. Absolutely. And then that helps explain why we treat the relics the way we do, because we treat them the way that we would treat the body of a loved one, right? If a loved one is near us, you might kiss them or hug them or embrace them or shake their hand or whatever, depending on our relationship with them. And that's how we, that's how we treat the bodies of of the saints as well. Mm -hmm. So angels and saints, who they are, and why it matters. Why does it matter that we have this ongoing connection and communion with the saints who have gone before? Yeah, I mean, I can think of approximately a billion reasons, but just based <laughs> on our just based on our conversation here, I like to say that 
uh, sort of the communion of saints, belief in the communion of the saints is like a very, the most tangible way we express our belief in the life everlasting. Because it's one thing to say we believe in heaven. Um, and it's one thing to have a kind of vague notion of like, oh, grandma's in a better place. It's a totally other thing to talk to grandma, right? It's a totally other thing to talk to the saints and actually believe that we can have a friendship with them and that they can help us. It's a very tangible way that we exercise our faith in everlasting life and, and demonstrate faith in everlasting life. Um, and similarly, as you just mentioned, with the resurrection of the body, it's one thing to say that, you know, we're going to get our bodies back at the end of the time. It's another thing to treat dead bodies like they actually are who they say they are and that they're going to rise again to eternal life. Uh, and so those are, um, you know, two things we say in the creed that we might kind of take for granted, but we don't just sort of profess these things. We actually enact them every day in popular piety. And hopefully that uh, resounds back to a confidence in in our own eternal destiny and our own sort of the reception of our own flesh. Mm-hmm. Going back to that thing with grandma, you know, we, we know grandma, we know her affection for us. We know the amount of time that she prayed for us and interceded for us, sometimes even interceded for on our behalf with our parents uh, while she was here. And to be able to trust that that same level of care and concern and intercession continues to take place is a deeply comforting thing. Absolutely. And I, and just to make that point clear, there are canonized saints which are approved by the church for the universal worship, but there's nothing wrong with having other saints in your private devotions and prayers, such as holy the holy dead that you know or whatever. It's not presumptuous to talk to these people who you know have died in the peace of Christ. Um, but even if they're not approved for sort of liturgical incorporation. That book, again, is Angels and Saints, Who They Are and Why They Matter, part of the Engaging Catholicism series on Ave Maria Press, a partnership with the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. You have another book that I want to use, that I want to talk about in our Patreon segment coming up. Uh, It's part of the What Every Catholic Should Know series, co-published by the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press. Your specific volume is God, What Every Catholic Should Know, because that's a nice, narrow topic. Give us kind of the 30-second view. Uh, We'll talk about this more in the Patreon segment, more at length. but, But what is this book? How does it help us? Uh, answer these very poignant questions about who God is. Yeah, absolutely. When I was asked to write the book, I also laughed and thought like, yeah, that's a really small topic. But the person who asked me to write it said, look, there's everything you could know about God. And then there's everything you really should know about God. Uh, And that's the second thing. And so the book really starts from ground zero and just talking a little bit about um, maybe our imaginations about God that are our misconceptions about who God is and how they they might affect the way that we worship him. Um, and then it really just uh, lays the foundation for the basic doctrine of God of the Catholic faith, like the doctrine of the Trinity that maybe some people don't spend a lot of time thinking about um, sort of what that doctrine is and then why it matters uh, to everyday life and to the way we relate to God. Yeah. That book, again, is God, What Every Catholic Should Know, available on Ignatius Press uh, and co-published with the Augustine Institute. We've been talking today with Dr. Elizabeth Klein, an associate professor of theology at the Augustine Institute just outside of Denver, Colorado. You can learn more over at formed.org, where they've got a number of popular level Bible studies and resources uh, for you to grow in your faith. Dr. Klein, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Klein, or you want to go back and listen to something again, or share it with your friends over on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. 
And if you're intrigued with our brief little snippet of a conversation on the book, What Every Catholic Should Know About God, well, there is more to that conversation over at our Patreon page, over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link, and there you can find all kinds of content that is released early to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps cover the bills that we have to stay on the air. And in gratitude, we give them extra content each and every week. After about six months, that content becomes available to you. So maybe you want to go catch up on some of those older extra segments, see what you missed, and maybe consider becoming a part of that community. Now, without further ado, let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more. You can learn more over at verbum.com. Our reading today from scripture comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That reading again comes from the book of Psalms 91. This passage is a great source of comfort because it's the promise of God's protection and the promise of God's presence. But even in the midst of this being a very comforting verse, it's helpful to remember that this is also a verse that the devil used to tempt Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Shortly after the baptism of the Lord, uh, he went across into the wilderness, crossed the river into the wilderness, fasted for 40 days, and at the end of those 40 days was tempted by the devil. And this was one of those three temptations. Throw yourself here off of the parapet because he gives his angels charge over you and they will not let your foot be dashed against a stone. Therefore, uh, this will prove that you are the son of God because they will swoop down and protect you. And of course, Jesus responds with the words of Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so 
yes, this is a great source of comfort because we see all of these promises that God gives uh, to the, the, the psalmist, to his people. But we also see Jesus responding, uh, just because you have these promises, don't go looking for trouble, right? Uh, in all of this, though, here at the end, we can be tempted in that same way to think, oh, well, nothing ever, nothing bad's ever going to happen because God promised me these things. And yet at the end of this passage, we see the, the, the true promise. Um, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And so even if we experience hardships and difficulties, we still turn to this passage in, in hope and seek comfort in it because we know that in all things, God's presence will be with us and he gives his angels charge over us. And there, even with Jesus at the end of that temptation, after those three temptations, the devil went away. The scripture says to look for a more opportune time. And the angels came and ministered to him. And in the same way, we trust in God's promise and we trust His in his presence and we trust that he gives his angels charge over us. In our reading from the church today, we're going to read a section of that document that Dr. Klein mentioned from the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments called the Directory on Popular Piety and the Liturgy, Principles and Guidelines. This was put out in 2002, and we're going to be reading around section 215 from a selection in the section on angels. The Church which at its outset was saved and protected by the ministry of angels and which constantly experiences their mysterious and powerful assistance, venerates these heavenly spirits and has recourse to their prompt intercession. During the liturgical year, the church celebrates the role played by the holy angels in the events of salvation and commemorates them on specific days. September 29th, the Feast of the Archangels Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, and the 2nd of October, the Guardian Angels. The Church has a votive Mass dedicated to the Holy Angels, whose preface proclaims that the glory of the Lord is reflected in His angels. In the celebration of the Sacred Mysteries, the Church associates herself with the angelic hymn and proclaims the thrice holy God. Invoking their assistance so that the Eucharistic sacrifice may be taken to your altar in heaven, in the presence of divine majesty. The office of lauds is celebrated in their presence. The church entrusts to the ministry of the holy angels the prayers of the faithful, the contrition of penitence, and the protection of the innocent from the assaults of the malign one. The church implores God to send his angels at the end of the day to protect the faithful as they sleep, prays that the celestial spirits come to the assistance of the faithful in their last agony, and, in the rite of obsequies, invokes God to send his angels to accompany the souls of the just into paradise and to watch over their graves. Down through the centuries, the faithful have translated into various devotional exercises the teaching of the faith in relation to the ministry of angels. The holy angels have been adopted as patrons of cities and corporations, Great shrines in their honor have developed, each appointed with a specific feast day. Hymns and devotions to the holy angels have also been composed. Popular piety encompasses many forms of devotion to the guardian angels. St. Basil the Great taught that each and every member of the faithful has a guardian angel to protect, guard, and guide them through life. 
This ancient teaching was consolidated by biblical and patristic sources and lies behind many forms of piety. St. Bernard of Clairvaux was the great master and notable promoter of the devotion to the guardian angels. For him, they were proof that heaven denies us nothing that assists us, and hence these celestial spirits have been placed at our sides to protect us, instruct us, and to guide us. Devotion to the holy angels gives rise to a certain form of the Christian life which is characterized by devout gratitude to God for having placed these heavenly spirits of great sanctity and dignity at the service of man, by families at morning and evening prayers, or at the resuscitation of the Angelus. Popular devotions to the holy angels, which is legitimate and good, can, however, also give rise to possible deviations when, as sometimes can happen, the faithful are taken by the idea that the world is subject to demiurgical struggles or an incessant battle between good and evil spirits or angels and demons in which man is left at the mercy of superior forces and over which he is helpless. Such cosmologies bear little relation to the true gospel vision of the struggle to overcome the devil, which requires moral commitment and a fundamental option for the gospel, humility, and prayer. Or when the daily events of life, which have nothing or little to do with our progressive maturing on the journey towards Christ, are read schematically or simplistically, indeed childishly, so as to ascribe all setbacks to the devil and all successes to the guardian angels. The practice of assigning names to the holy angels should be discouraged, except in those cases of Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael, whose names are contained in Holy Scripture. That reading comes from a section, uh, starting at paragraph 215, going through paragraph 217, of the Directory on Popular Piety and the Liturgy, put out by the Congregation of Divine Worship and the Discipline on the Sacraments uh, back in the year 2002. So how are we best to express our devotion to the angels? Well, this document shows us a beautiful thing the church often does, which is to provide so much freedom. There isn't a prescription, a specific way that we are supposed to engage in our, our relationship with the angels or to engage in our devotion to the angels. Rather, they say, here's the ways that the church has done this throughout history and done it in the liturgy. And by the way, there are a couple of things you might want to avoid, but apart from that, there's freedom. So what is the best way? Well, the best way is for you to venerate the angels in a way that moves you towards greater maturity, spiritual maturity, and greater sanctity. Anything that abdicates your own role in your spiritual growth, anything that says, oh, I'm helpless in, in the, the sight of these greater creatures kind of battling things out. Those are the things to be avoided. But anytime that our devotion to the, to the angels, to the saints, asks for their intercessions for our own increase in virtue and our own increase in sanctity, those are the things that the church celebrates and encourages. That's all the time we have for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have thoughts about popular devotions or your own devotions to the angels and saints, come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads. The handle is at step outside the walls. 
Today's show was brought to you by Lexi and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.